Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert and advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hi, Allison. Get your Rule Your Retirement today. That's right. Morgan Housel is back this week. Hi, Allison. Hi, Morgan. He's the senior analyst for Motley Fool One with an expertise in behavioral finance. He's here to call out five stupid things people in finance say all the time. He's also going to take issue with Robert's new freewheeling, hell may care, live for today, party hard, and leave a destitute corpse girlfriend. She's not really my girlfriend. Well, I don't really like her either. So, all that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, I think it was Gawker that first saw this article. I don't know. I like to try to trace viral stuff back as far as possible. That, then that made me think of STDs, which I don't mess with. But <laughs> stuff that goes viral on the internet, I like to trace it back as much as possible. And so I think Gawker was the first one to notice this fun little read on what's called Elite Daily. And the article was called, If You Have Savings in Your 20s, You're Doing Something Wrong, written by one Lauren Martin, a 20-something lady, and Pez Dispenser of Wisdom. This article <laughs> went, like I said, viral uh, because basically she was espousing everything that you shouldn't do in personal finance in your 20s. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, her, give, her, some, give some specifics of what Here's she some specifics said. of what she said. Your 20s are not the time to save. They're the time to gamble. $200 a month isn't going to make a dent that a $60,000 pay raise will after spending all those nights out networking. I for one am very excited that when I was in my 20s and out like being raucous and hitting the bars, I wasn't just getting drunk and having fun. I was networking that whole time. Guys would come up to you and say, can I buy you a drink and give you a $60,000 right. raise? <laughs> that, that happens all the time. <laughs> and then it turns out I was a prostitute. And I had no idea the whole time that men were coming up and offering me money like that. Um, so she, she starts off her article by saying, this goes back to a piece of advice a very successful friend gave me. And this very successful friend said, said, don't save money, make more money. He nonchalantly stated, pushing me into a taxi. That's like saying, don't exercise, just don't get fat. <laughs> I don't think it works that way. So people were naturally outraged by this, uh, except for one Robert Brokamp, who, as we brought it, no, no, as we brought it up, Morgan and I, during our planning meeting, we were like, this is awful, this is reprehensible, this is horrible. And you're like, well. She's kind of got a point. There's a lot of stuff I disagree with, and we'll let Morgan handle that side of the argument. But um, she makes some good points. Let's hear them. No, you start. Okay. You do the easy job. Well, the, you know, the idea that you shouldn't save money in your 20s because you should be going out and experiencing things with your friends and having a good time with your friends, it's predicated on this idea that you can't have a good time with your friends without spending every dollar to your name. Which I wrote in, in my rebuttal. If if you can't have fun with your friends without spending all your money, your friends don't actually like you. you, know, if, you if the only time you can have fun with your friends is by going to an expensive bar, that's probably not the best. You're all horrible and, people. And horrible, all, boring people. And her article also seemed based on this idea that it was all or nothing. You can either spend every dollar to your name or you can save like a miser and there's nothing in between. But of course, it's just a balance between the two. You can save money in your 20s and still have a good time and see the world. Um, and then I just took issue with some of her specific points. Most most of her points, I think, were tongue-in-cheek because they were so outlandish that I think I don't think any sane person could actually write this and believe it. 
I don't know, 20, 20 something women are pretty insane yeah. a lot of times. <laughs> speaking as one who used except to Except for the ones who are listening to this podcast. Except for the ones who are listening to this podcast, because you guys are obviously discerning consumers of content. But I remember when I was in my early 20s, just out of college, making my first paycheck, I made some pretty poor decisions. I think that was peak poor decision time yeah. in my life, my my like early 20s. Yeah. All right, bro. You think she's got a point. So- uh, first of all, she is an over like she is an over the top writer, so I think that's part of her style. She even wrote an article about being the benefits of being over the top. Um, I do think that when you are in your twenties without a mortgage and without kids, it is a time to do some things that you won't be able to do later in life, and that might mean like her living in New York City and enjoying it. She wrote about how she was living in New York, but she was basically in her apartment the whole time, um, or it might be teaching English in a foreign country or might be service work. I, I did, uh, I joined something called the Teacher Service Corps in my 20s and taught at a Catholic school and made very little money. That's the time in life to do that type of thing. And if it means you don't start saving in your retirement in your 20s, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world, but you have to understand the trade-offs. That might mean you have to retire later. Uh, but as someone myself who plans to retire much later than traditional retirement age, I'm fine with those types of trade-offs. One thing, though, that she is wrong about, uh, and that is she wrote about how saving $200 a month basically is not as beneficial as making that big raise. So, of course, I ran some numbers. So, if you were 25 and going to retire at 65, you save $200 a month, 40 years, 8% a year, you'd have over $700,000. Put that off 10 years so you don't start until you're 35, you're going to only have $300,000. Wow. So there is a benefit to starting early. But if you don't start early because there's something else really important you want to do with your life, go ahead and do it. Just understand you're going to have to retire later. Right. Well, she, like to the point about get, uh, saving 200 a month isn't going to make a dent that a 60000 pay raise will. It's funny how when you get, I think studies have shown, bro, you'll probably know more about these than I do, that when you get a pay raise or when you buy a bigger house or when you get you know more in your life, it just spurs you to get more. Like when you buy a bigger house, you buy more stuff to fill the house. And if she was probably, I imagine this woman, if she got a $60,000 pay raise, her expenses would go up about $60,000. I don't know about the bars you go to either, but the bars I've been to, it doesn't seem like the clientele or the people who are just having $60,000 raises thrown at them all day. (laughs) Well, that's, (laughs) that's another point. Like for someone who's reading this and thinking about this, you do have to know your career prospects. I mean, she's a blogger. I don't know how much most bloggers make, but it's it's not a job where you get a $60,000 raise off the bat. Well, with her outrageous article, like I said, going all over the internet, maybe she did get a nice raise from her employer. <laughs> she so she can have. keep writing this stuff. Like Her next article will probably be something like, heroin, give it a shot. <laughs> Unprotected sex with strangers, do it. <laughs> And then she'll have more viral hits on her hand. I, I Many probably... viral hits in the case of that latter article. <laughs> I'll probably see less, fewer good points in those articles. As I said, Morgan Housel is back. Morgan is the senior analyst for Motley Fool One, and he's also an expert in behavioral finance. And you are here today to address five stupid things that people in finance say all the time. That's right. There's more than five, but I think you picked five good ones. There are dozens. Infinite. Infinite stupid things that people in finance say. Let's start off with the first one. The first one is I need to say this. I, I was thinking about this ahead of time. I was like, do I say this in like a, a Thurston Howell kind of voice where I'm like a 
financier or do I say it in like I'm a mean guy from the streets kind of voice or is it like I am a CNBC anchor like who is saying these things let's do let's do CNBC anchor CNBC anchor and so and these are things that you would say often a CNBC anchor would say all right yeah love to the CNBC anchors with all due respect (laughs) here we go he predicted the market crash of 2008 Good, I like that. <laughs> my, my problem when people say things like this are a lot of the people who predicted the crash of 2008 who get credit for predicting it also predicted dozens of crashes that never occurred. So there's a difference between he predicted the crash of 2008 and he has predicted crashes, one of which happened to occur in 2008. So a lot of the famous people that get credit, Peter Schiff and Nuri Rubini, those guys have been predicting crashes often for decades. So yeah, they, they they predicted the crash of 2008. They also predicted the crash of 2006 and 2004 and 2003 and 1992 that never occurred. So it's just it's just the classic broken clock is right twice a day. But we never notice that because when the when the stock market is booming and these guys are predicting doom, no one pays any attention to them. And then when the economy falls, all of a sudden they are the heroes. Yeah, I was right. And get An all the oracle. Attention. I right. saw it coming. Right. And to the the extent that these people manage money. It's one thing to be right about a prediction. It's another thing to look at their investment success and see whether that translated into anything. And I remember back when Peter Schiff was getting all this attention for being right, uh, some news organizations talked to his clients and they say, yeah, well, he may have been right, but my portfolio didn't benefit from that. So there's one thing about having a belief or making a prediction, and then it's another thing about turning it into a successful investment strategy. All right, next one. This is the kind of situation where we've got more buyers and sellers, wouldn't yeah. you say, Morgan? Yeah, there are a lot of times when people are trying to explain why the market went up or why the market went down. Why, why did the market go up today? Well, there are more buyers and sellers. Why did the market fall today? Well, more sellers and buyers. It makes sense when you think of it that way. But for every trade, for every single stock trade out there, there is exactly one buyer and one seller for everyone. They always match up one-to-one. So people always talk about all these investors are selling stocks. Investors are all selling stocks. No, there's always one buyer for every sale. Even when the market is plunging, when the Dow falls a thousand points, there is exactly one buyer for every seller. That's always how it works. It's a market. So, but but if the if the stock price is falling, then that means that the stock price had to fall before. It means that the seller was the more seller. anxious to sell than the than the buyer. Uh, so the buyer has leverage there, but there's always one buyer for every trade that goes through. So, so even on, on days when the Dow is falling a thousand points, you might say no one's buying stocks. No, they're just as many buyers as sellers. It is a marketplace. It's a it's it's a type of an eBay, and there are people who have inventory of stocks. And when they can see that people want to sell, they mark down the price basically, um, and say, you know, okay, uh, I'll buy it from you, but I'm only going to buy it from you at this point. That's where the price gets the adjustment. But there still has to be someone there willing to buy. And the same, uh, the same in reverse. In 1999, when tech stocks were blowing through the roof, there were just as many sellers as buyers at that time. But it's hard for people to think that way. Yeah. All right. The next one. Earnings were positive before one-time charges. Yeah. A lot of times when companies are reporting earnings, they will report earnings after one-time charges. So let's say what is a one-time charge? Yeah. So they'll say we earned one dollar per share. Before one-time charges, those one-time charges will be things like restructuring charges, or you know they laid off employees and they had these uh, these these charges for pension benefits or whatnot. They they spun off a business and they took a loss on that. And one-time charges for a lot of companies happen every quarter. 
So they're they're portrayed as there's it's this one time crazy expense. It, it's not going to reflect our future earnings. But these one time charges happen over and over and over and over again. And it's really just a way for businesses to sweep their mistakes under the rug. And uh, and they say, look, you know, we we earned a lot of money here. Uh, if you just exclude everything we screwed up on, just don't pay attention to that. <laughs> Do they get called out on that? I imagine if I were being a good CNBC anchor, I would be like, yeah, that's what you said last quarter. No, I, I think in most media, there's no such thing as the past, or the, the past extends back no more than 30 days, and you know that's why you, all these people go on CNBC and they share their predictions of what the market's going to do next. If you look at their past. All these guys are at best flipping a coin, but no one cares about their past track record. They just want to hear what they think going forward. It reminds me of when um, I occasionally will ask people, especially investors, so how is your portfolio doing? Because I'm not sure a lot of people actually track it. And they'll say, oh, my stocks are doing well, except for the ones that are down. <laughs> it's just sort of like that. Yeah. All right, next one. Investors are fleeing the market. Yeah, this is kind of the same thing as buyers and sellers. There's always this idea that investors are fleeing the market, but every share of stock is owned by somebody at some point. So you might have some investors that are selling, but for every seller, there's a buyer. And no matter what the stock price is at, every single person, each share is owned by somebody uh, at each point. So if someone is selling a mutual fund, someone else is, is buying those shares. So it's at different prices, but every share of stock is always owned by somebody. But couldn't they say this and be right if people were like increasingly going to cash or stuff like that? If they're going or? to cash, that means they sold their shares to somebody else. So that somebody else now owns those like shares. Individual share numbers, maybe. I don't know. I'm I think the way to look at it would be if um, you were like an online, look at like online brokers. Every day they take orders from their clients. And some days they're going to get more buy orders, and some days they're going to be more selling orders. And that definitely is more along the lines of what they're saying when they're saying sellers or people are fleeing the market. But there may be more sellers, but someone's got to be the buyer. Right. So, and there, on the New York Stock Exchange, there are what is known as specialists. They have to buy. That's their job. Their job is to create that market. So they have to buy it, but then they can set the price to a certain degree. Right. So if someone's rushing in, someone's rushing out. Yeah. All right. Last one. They don't have any debt except for a mortgage and student loans. I see this all the time in personal finance articles and whatnot. And they talk about so and so is debt free except for their student loans and mortgage. Like that somehow doesn't matter. And I, I explained in the article, it's like saying, I'm a vegan except for steak. You're like, well, okay, that doesn't really that doesn't really fit. And a lot of people just have this idea that student loans, you know, it, it it's a different kind of debt. It's different in bad ways in the sense that you can't write it off in bankruptcy. But it is it is probably the most uh, it's probably the debt that holds people down the most. Yep. But it is often portrayed as well, it doesn't that's a different kind of debt. It's an I, investment I think, I think, in my future. I think there are a lot of people that think the only debt that is you know, that they consider debt is like credit card debt. Right. Maybe. But I think if you just look at the raw numbers, student loans are holding people down more than anything. And debt, you know, the the bad part of debt is that just it takes away your options for the future, your spending options, your work options, your pay options. And student loans and mortgages will do that just as much as any other kind of debt. So, in fact, uh, student loan debt exceeds credit card debt yeah. these days. And it's not just finance folks who think this. People believe this. In my days as a financial advisor, and when I work with full employees, they say the same thing. And I think you're right, Morgan. That's what they mean. Like. I don't have credit card debt yeah. because it's a given 
if you own a house, you have to have a mortgage. It's just like saying, um, you know, you don't even mention that. This is just part of the deal. At one great point you made in one of your articles, Morgan, was someone was saying, don't be a renter, be a homeowner. Yeah. Uh, and you pointed out that actually, if you have a mortgage, you're renting money. You're renting money. From you're renting bank. money from the <laughs> bank. You're just doing a different type of yeah. renting. But it is, it is important. And with mortgages, people often overestimate this tax benefits. Like, eh, it's a little debt, low interest rate, plus I get tax benefits. Most people actually don't because you have to itemize, and most people don't itemize. It's only about a third of homeowners who, who have interest uh, are actually able to write that interest off. Yeah. But so many people think they do, but right. then you look at their tax record and say, no, you didn't. You took the standard deduction. Yeah. You didn't get any benefit. Yeah. yeah. So what's your advice to our listeners when it comes to listening to i mean watching reading listening financial media and by the way molly full is one of those voices out there but um what's your advice for when they're watching cnbc and, and hearing all these different pundits and hosts talk about markets yeah i'd say 25 years ago there was about one hour of investing tv per week you had lewis Kaiser and that was about it now it's virtually 24 7. but the amount of information that you need to pay attention to that is important did not change during that period. When we went from one hour a week to 24-7, the amount of important news didn't change. And I think investors were probably better served back when it was one hour a week of TV rather than 24-7. Because just to fill 24-7 means you just have to reach deeper down into the news well or to start kind of making stuff up just to fill the time. There was a great moment in 2009. Jim Cramer went on Jon Stewart's The Daily Show. And they were talking about... Financial that was brutal, TV, by the way, everyone should watch that. They're talking about financial TV, and Jim Cramer said, "You know, you have to understand, we have 17 hours a day to fill, and you know, and that means we have to talk about some silly things sometimes." And John Stewart goes, "Maybe you could cut down on that. Like, <laughs> the the answer isn't to keep filling it with silly stuff. The answer is to maybe." Maybe you shouldn't be on 24-7. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He ripped into Kramer, man, yeah. and telling him they just stop it. So I think it's important it. for investors to know that not everything you see, or I think the vast majority of what you see on financial TV is, is not relevant to either your goals or really anyone's goals. It's just kind of entertainment. A lot of it is trying to explain things like short-term market movement. Like, what happened? Why did this happen today? And it just doesn't, first of all, it doesn't matter if you're a long-term investor. Second of all, no one really knows. I mean, the stock market is the, the collective investment will, wisdom of millions of investors around the world. Sometimes, if something like the Federal Reserve does something, or there's a terrorist attack, yeah, okay, it's clear what happened. But otherwise, we, most of the time, we don't really know why the market did what it did, and it doesn't make any sense trying to explain it. More buyers than yeah. sellers. <laughs> yeah, that's why I think it would be like a special level of health whose job it is is to report on what the market did every day. You know, oh, like yeah. Bloomberg, AP, all of them have someone who has to report. Like, here's what the market did today. I mean, and as, they as gotta Ro find out why. They as gotta get saying, someone. Like, there are some days where it's clear. I remember in 2008, Congress voted down TARP, the bank bail bank bailout, and instantly the Dow fell 800 points. Like that, you can tie pretty clearly. Here is why the market fell today. Right. But that's like. Maybe once a year you can tie it that clearly to why the market did. Most days, if the Dow is up or down 50 points, there's no explanation that anyone could give. But people try to give it. They try right. to say, the Dow fell 50 points on a weak manufacturing report. And you're like, come on. Right. How many investors just were just waiting up? there, at the, having their discount brokerage <laughs> right. up online? Let's yeah. see what happens. The report came out. Okay, I'm going to buy or sell. So who do you guys, what's one person that you guys do listen to and respect in financial media? Morgan Housel. 
That's it. The beginning <laughs> and the Housel. end of that list is Morgan Housel. I have a list of people. One, one person who I'm more impressed with than anyone recently is a guy named Ben Carlson. He writes a blog called A Wealth of Common Sense. And didn't he just hop on Ritholtz? Just this week, yeah. he announced that he joined uh, Josh Brown and Barry Ritholtz's firm. But he is someone who I think better than anyone has a combination of wisdom and the ability to communicate his thoughts. So he's he's phenomenal. Being a financial planner, my go-to guy is a fellow named Michael Kitsis. Um, he talks about everything related to financial planning, taxes, retirement accounts, and stuff like that. To the extent he discusses investing, it's more related to like how market valuation will affect your portfolio. How much can you take out in retirement based on what the market is doing in different asset classes and asset allocation? So he does nothing about like what the market did today. It's more of like how does how do you tie all of these things together to accomplish your goals, reduce your taxes, ensure a safe retirement, that type of stuff. Both these guys are pretty active on Twitter, so you can go follow them. You can also follow Morgan on Twitter at TMF Housel. That's easy. TMF H O U S E L. House L. That's right. All right, guys. That's going to do it for today. Morgan, thank you for joining us. It's Thanks. always nice to have you back for a conversation, a little chat. It. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Well, we'll have you back uh, after you have your baby. Well, it's not actually me having it, but I don't know if you understand the biology of this. <laughs> I was ta- thinking you're looking, that you're looking a little thin for someone who's about <laughs> to give birth in a couple of weeks. All right, the show is edited consistently by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on.